Hi, this is the Tolkien Professor checking in. The fourth lecture in the Hobbit series is underway. I'm about halfway done with it now. But I've decided to supplement my main lecture series on the books with some more informal podcasts. I'd like to do more discussion, more interaction with listeners, and not just lecturing. I mean, after all, in my own classes, I much prefer discussion classes to big lecture classes. What I'd like to do, my goal is to set up a kind of audio mailbag through my podcast. Here's how it'll work. Through my website, I have a discussion board. You can access it either through my website itself, www.tolkienprofessor.com, and then click on the discussion link, or else you can go there directly at com. Anyway, on my discussion board, I'm going to create a forum called Podcast Q&A. So what you can do is if you have a question that you'd like me to answer, you can submit it to that forum on the discussion board. And actually, if you'd like, you can record yourself asking the question and attach the audio file, and then I will make a podcast like this in which I'll play your question and then I'll answer it so that people can actually hear from, from real listeners and questions from real people as we go along. Today, though, I thought I'd just kind of get the ball rolling on the general questions and discussion front by talking about two classic online Tolkien debate questions. Uh, these are questions I find are always guaranteed to be asked when I teach my Tolkien class, so I figure I should cover them and have done. The first one is the legendary debate, do Balrogs have wings? And the second one is the, I think, larger and more interesting question, who is Tom Bombadil exactly? So, first, do Balrogs have wings? Answer, no. No, they don't. Now, the idea of Balrogs having wings is in my mind a very understandable misinterpretation of the book. Um, you know, I, I've kind of never quite understood the passion that some people have over this debate, but I actually, as a literature professor, I take this as a good sign. You know, some people think that this debate is just is just silly, and I agree that it's a pretty minor issue. But as a teacher of literature, I really, I really quite like it. I like the fact that people are engaging really carefully with the text and really reading closely and sort of debating about particular words and phrases. This you know, in some sort of geeky way makes me feel really happy. Anyway, the great Balrog wing debate arises uh, from the scene in the Bridge of Khazad-dûm when Gandalf confronts the Balrog on the bridge. Let me just go through and read a couple par the, 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 the few paragraphs, the section which has given birth to this debate. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on the staff in his left hand, but in his other hand Glamdring gleamed cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip, and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils, but Gandalf stood firm. "'You cannot pass,' he said. The orc stood still, and a dead silence fell. "'I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Aenor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass.' The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall, but still Gandalf could be seen, glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small and altogether alone, gray and bent, like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. Now the critical line here, which has led to the misunderstanding, is that description in that last paragraph where it says the Balrog stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. Now, many have, you know, sort of read this and say, well, you know, that's that. It says it has wings that are spread from wall to wall. But we have to understand this passage in context. 
the Balrog's power is manifested in shadow and flame. Uh, we look at how the darkness and shadow was associated with the Balrog. We sort of just look a page earlier when the Balrog first appears, and we can see several references to this. Um, we're told... Let's see, he says, The ranks of the orcs had opened, and they crowded away as if they themselves were afraid. Something was coming up behind them. What it was could not be seen. It was like a great shadow, in the middle of which was a dark form, of man's shape, maybe, yet greater, and a power and terror seemed to be in it and to go before it. It came to the edge of the fire, and the light faded as if a cloud had bent over it. Then with a rush it leaped across the fissure. The flames roared up to greet it, and wreathed about it, and a black smoke swirled in the air. So anyway, you'll notice that he says the Balrog itself, when they first see it, it says that it was like a great shadow. When it comes up to the fire, the the light of the fire itself uh, you know, fades as if covered with a cloud. Darkness and shadow just follows the Balrog around. Now, again, both as I said before, both of these things, both both the flame that kindles the, in the Balrog and the shadow that surrounds it, are, manif- are visible manifestations of the Balrog's power. Tolkien often does this. He provides the reader with, with, with this kind of visual manifestation of the power or the force of will of one of his powerful characters. Uh, this is why Gandalf is described as glimmering. There are a couple places in this scene where, where, where it sounds like light is coming from, from Gandalf. It's the same principle. The light uh, of Gandalf, the light from his staff and the light from his sword affects the Balrog, not just because the Balrog is like photophobic, you know, because he's he's been living in tunnels for a long time and, and, and his eyes aren't adjusted. Um, but rather, I mean, this this light is a is a representation of Gandalf's power and of the power of his sword as well. It is in that way like the shadow of the Balrog. You may have noticed a couple sentences before that that critical sentence in which Tolkien describes the wings of the Balrog spreading out. He alludes to wings and shadow. Right before Gandalf's speech, we're told, his enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. This is a simile. That is, he is comparing the shadow of the Balrog to wings. And so then after Gandalf gives his speech, and giving his, 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 his awesome you-cannot-pass speech, Gandalf is attacking the Balrog. He is putting forth his power. That's why we see the fire in the Balrog die as a result of Gandalf's attack. When, therefore, in that, in that paragraph afterwards, the Balrog rears back up again and spreads his shadow out and reaches his shadow out to surround and engulf Gandalf, this is the Balrog's counterattack. He's now fighting back against Gandalf, and uh, and Tolkien is using the same comparison to wings to describe the shadow of the Balrog reaching around. He used a simile before, um, his uh, the shadow reaching out like two vast wings, and now he's alluding back to that simile, now using it as a metaphor, uh, saying that its wings were spread from wall to wall, that is the wings of shadow it had been talking about earlier. That's why... Tolkien talks about the Balrog's wings. It's not literal wings. It's just a comparison to try to help us visualize uh, this shadow, which is itself a visualization of the Balrog's power. Now, of course, there are also some practical considerations that make the idea of the Balrog having literal and physical wings pretty unlikely. For one thing, of course, it, it falls off the bridge and into the chasm, which would be a little odd if it had wings. I mean, in fact, Gandalf's whole strategy here would be pretty darn short-sighted um, if he were fighting against a winged opponent. I mean, his whole plan is to bring the Balrog out onto the bridge, break the bridge underneath it, and then send it toppling down into the abyss. Uh, surely Gandalf might 
might perhaps have thought ahead to the fact that he could just fly out if, in fact, uh, he saw that he had wings. It's also clear from the Balrog's reaction, that is his reaction to falling into the into the abyss, uh, that he's pretty upset about the situation. Uh, you know, we're told with a terrible cry, the Balrog fell forward. It seems to be really genuinely upset about this in a way in which very few flying creatures uh, w- would probably react uh, uh, to falling from a height. Uh, and in fact, actually, this is not even the only uh, the only Balrog that has been defeated with uh, with the help of gravity. Uh, in the Silmarillion, the elf Glorfindel kills a Balrog in the same way, casting it down the side of a mountain to its death. Now, some Balrog wing proponents will argue that the chasm under Durin's bridge was just too narrow for the Balrog to fly in because you know it had those huge wings spreading from wall to wall, and that's why it, that's why it falls. I don't find this a very convincing argument at all. First of all, the Balrog is clearly significantly smaller than the chasm. In fact, in some of Tolkien's notes, although he talks about it drawing itself up to a great height, in some of his notes he suggests that the Balrog might not be very much larger than human size, though the aura of fear that he projects would make him sort of feel larger than he is. In any case, the spread of wings across the whole cavern, as I've explained, is designed to convey the exertion and extent of his power as he fights back against Gandalf. The idea of a creature that's been living in underground tunnels for millennia, walking around with literal wings that big dragging around behind him is is, is absurd. Last point, and I've done. The misunderstanding of the wing metaphor is sometimes compounded by a similar misunderstanding of a line in the appendices of The Return of the King. Um, It's in the place where Tolkien is explaining how the Balrog ended up in Moria in the first place. He talks about the dwarves digging for Mithril and says, Thus they roused from sleep a thing of terror that, flying from Thangorodrim, had lain hidden at the foundations of the earth since the coming of the host of the west, a Balrog of Morgoth. So, again, people who, who read the wings passage and say, oh, see, he has wings, and they look at this and they say, oh, look, it says he, f- he was flying from Thangorodrim, so it has wings and it flies. You know, uh, problem solved. This, I have to say, is just a simple error. Tolkien very often uses words in an older sense than they're commonly used today. Most of the times Tolkien uses the word fly, he is using it to mean run away very fast. We can see, in fact, two examples of this in the Bridge of Khazad-dûm scene itself. When Gandalf first recognizes the Balrog, the first thing he does is shout to his companions, Fly! This is a foe beyond any of you! I must hold the narrow way! Fly! Uh, And, of course, his famous last words as he is about to fall into the abyss himself is, Fly, you fools! Now, in neither of these cases, presumably, is, is... Gandalf suggesting literal flight uh, to the companions. So we can see how Tolkien is using that word there. And that's what he meant about the Balrogs. The Balrogs, when Morgoth, their master, was defeated by the Valar at the end of the First Age, they ran away from Thangorodrim, uh, the old stronghold, very fast uh, because they were running for their lives. And so he retreated uh, and hid himself. All right. Okay. So let's leave our poor wingless Balrog plummeting helplessly into the abyss and turn to popular discussion question number two. Who is Tom Bombadil? Now, on some levels, this question's actually pretty easy. A simple process of elimination brings us to the likeliest answer pretty quickly. We know he can't be a hobbit, a man, a dwarf, or an elf, because by his own account, he predates all these. We can trace how far back he goes in the history of Middle-earth through references he makes in his description of how long he's been living in his little neighborhood there uh, in the Old Forest. We know he was there in the middle of the Third Age, when he saw the little people arriving. We know he was there before the end of the Second Age, when the seas were bent and Valinor was removed from the world. Tolkien also mentioned earlier that he was telling stories of when the seas flowed straight to the western shore. It's a reference to the same thing. 
He says that he made paths before the big people, who have been living in that region since the beginning of the Second Age at least. He says when the elves passed westward on their migration to Valinor early in the First Age, he was there already. He remembers the ancient starlight when only the elf sires were awake, and thus he was around before the races of hobbits, men, or dwarves were even awake in the world. He has been in that spot since before the rivers and the trees, remembering the first raindrop and the first acorn. He says he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the Dark Lord came from outside. The Dark Lord here, by the way, is not Sauron, but Morgoth, Sauron's old boss, uh, and also the boss of the, the Balrogs, who was overthrown at the end of the First Age. Tom Bombadil thus explains that he has been in that spot since the very beginning of creation, before any of the inhabitants of the earth were around. There is, therefore, only one thing he can plausibly be, a member of that order of beings who entered the world when it was newly created but yet unformed, and set to work to order and rule it in the name of the creator, Eru. These are the Ainur, which Tolkien in the Silmarillion breaks them down into two categories, the Valar, who are the great ones, who rule over the whole earth in stewardship under under Eru, and the Maiar, who are generally lesser spirits. Uh, Maiar are not always necessarily weaker and lesser than the Valar. We are told of some Maiar who are in some ways greater than some of the Valar, uh, stronger at least. But there is, at, at, at the very least, clearly a difference of, of authority, if not always absolutely of stature. Anyway, Tom Bombadil is presumptively a Maya. It seems very unlikely that he is one of the Valar themselves. He says he's been there in that spot throughout the entire time that the Valar have been active in the world. We know that the other Valar have been busy in other places, so it seems pretty unlikely that he's one of them. So he, he almost certainly must be one of those spirits, a Maiar, who entered the world and camped in that spot uh, and has been sort of restricting himself to tending and uh, being a steward over that little region since darn near the beginning of creation. So, as I said, that was relatively simple, but I'd like to address some of the particular theories and problems that this discussion has led to, however, because I think they're they're interesting and kind of important. Uh, first, one very popular theory is that Tom Bombadil is actually Eru, is actually God himself. And this reading is inspired by the response that Goldberry makes to Frodo. Frodo says to Goldberry, right near the beginning of In the House of Tom Bombadil, chapter 7 of The Fellowship of the Ring, he says, Tell me if my asking does not seem foolish. Who is Tom Bombadil? And Goldberry's response is just, He is. Some, therefore, have heard in this response by Goldberry an echo of the secret name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus, I am. Now, I disagree with this theory, but I have to say, I, I love this theory. I mean, I, I, I love that people are picking up on that. I think, I, I think that's a really sensitive reading. Uh, and there are many references like that uh, in literature that sort of are echoing that name, that, that, that concept, that, that name of God, I am, is a, is a really important one, both in the Bible and uh, in later uh, discussions of God and thoughts about God. So I think that's that's it's a great observation. In some ways, I'd actually really rather like this to be true. I would love, the, I mean, I, I love the idea that Tom Bombadil is actually Eru himself. So we actually sort of see, you know, God in this sort of material form kind of peeking in uh, through one of the episodes of the story. But in the end, I, I don't think it is true. There, 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 there are two main reasons why I disagree sort of reluctantly with this theory. 
For one, Goldberry seems to mean something very different by her he is response uh, than God mean, seems to mean by his name in the Bible. When God calls himself, I am that I am, he's drawing attention to the fact that he is the source and essence of all being, that he is so transcendent that there is nothing that ultimately can be compared with him besides himself. This is not what Goldberry seems to mean at all, as we can see by what she goes on to say. When Frodo looks at her questioningly after she just says he is, she adds, he is as you have seen him. Now Tom Bombadil says something very similar when later on Frodo asks him the same question. Frodo says, who are you, master? And Tom's response is not, I am, but rather his response is, don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? That is, neither Tom Bombadil nor Goldberry are revealing a mystery about Tom's nature. Rather, they are drawing attention to the nature of the question that Frodo is asking. Both of them lead the hobbits to consider their own being and the concept of identity, and what, and what that concept is grounded on. Now, the second reason I disagree with this theory is that Tom Bombadil doesn't look or act like Eru at all. For one thing, he's very provincial. God, or Eru, has all of creation in time and space held simultaneously in his infinite consideration. Tom Bombadil doesn't even care about what's happening 20 miles away. For another thing, Tom Bombadil is characterized by Gandalf as actively untrustworthy, not in the sense that he's deceitful or treacherous, but just that issues like, you know, the fate of Middle-earth have no hold on his mind, Gandalf says. Now, one might theorize that Gandalf is simply underestimating Tom here, but I don't think so. Remember that Gandalf has very great respect for Tom Bombadil, and that one of the first things he does in his state of semi-retirement after the destruction of the ring is to go find Tom Bombadil and have a long talk with him. Tom's concerns, as well as his domain, are regional. He certainly doesn't have the fate of all Arda in his consideration, and is thus very different from Eru or God. Now, one could argue, of course, that perhaps these things are just a front, and that Tom Bombadil is thus Eru in a very convincing disguise. But my response to that would be to ask this. Since he looks and acts nothing like Eru, on what evidence can we conclude that it is a disguise? Drawing a conclusion on the basis of the fact that the evidence points in another direction is a slippery slope that soon leads to nonsense. Well, so much for the Tom Bombadil as Eru theory. Now here's another point of interest or confusion. In what sense is he called eldest? He identifies himself this way. Eldest, that's what I am, he says. And Elrond in the Council of Elrond calls him oldest and fatherless. However, Treebeard the Ent is also called eldest, once by Gandalf and again by Celeborn. How are we to understand this? How are they both eldest? I'd say that these two things are really apples and oranges. That is, Treebeard is the oldest surviving mortal creature in Middle-earth that is mortal in the sense of killable. He's eldest, therefore, in the sense of oldest still alive. Um, but he wasn't there first. In fact, you know, he himself describes how the elves predated the Ents and taught them how to talk. Apparently, however, there are none of those first elves uh, left in Middle-earth, and so Treebeard is now the oldest remaining thing. Tom Bombadil is eldest in the sense that he has been around in Middle-earth longest. As I described before, he says he has been there since the descent of the Maiar and Valar into Arda, into the world in the first place. He may well actually have been first. I, I, I think it's entirely possible, it would be entirely consistent uh, with, with the other things that Tolkien says, to theorize that Tom Bombadil was the very first creature of that order who came into the world. I, and and I, can, I can easily believe that. In my mind, the real point of interest about the Tom Bombadil question is basically 
why we keep asking. Why are people so fascinated about this question? I think one reason for that is that Tom Bombadil is, in fact, so weird and so delightful. I was not at all surprised to see that Tom Bombadil was cut from the Peter Jackson film. Uh, In fact, I remember when I first heard that the Fellowship of the Ring movie was coming out back before it was made. uh, My very first, the very first thing that ran through my head, I remember was, well, obviously he's going to cut Tom Bombadil. And of course he did. Um, Now, not only am I not surprised that he was cut from the film, I can't imagine how it couldn't have been cut from the film. And in fact, I, I think it would have been horrible for anyone to try to depict Tom Bombadil on film. I mean, can you imagine what Tom Bombadil would look like if you actually casted and casted, costumed, uh, and scripted somebody on screen exactly like Tolkien describes Tom Bombadil in the book? I mean, the guy would look like an idiot. I mean, he goes around singing all the time these these silly chants. Either he's either he's singing a string of nonsense syllables or he's singing about his favorite topic uh, that is the color of his own boots. I mean, even when he speaks, even his normal conversation when he's not sort of officially singing is actually in verse. He's he's chanting the whole time. Now, of course, in saying these things, I'm not trying to slight Tom Bombadil. I think he's great, uh, and I think he's a really wonderful creation. But it really just wouldn't translate to film. I mean, even his nonsense language, one of the, I think, the most revealing things that Tolkien says about Tom Bombadil um, is after the Barrow White incident, when Frodo and the hobbits are, are, are riding with Tom, uh, he's riding with him on Fatty Lumpkin, and he's describing how Tom is just, you know, singing to himself, as he always is, pretty much the whole way. Uh, Tolkien says, Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense, or else perhaps a strange language unknown to the hobbits, an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. In Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, the hobbits, and we as readers, are confronted by something beyond human experience, something beyond the scope of human knowledge. There's a goodness, a power, a joy in Tom Bombadil that that barely even translate. The desire to, to... to pin him down, to, to identify and label the essence of Tom Bombadil is very natural. I mean, Frodo clearly feels this same desire. He keeps asking, who are you? Who are you? But it's not possible. It's not possible to simply define in terms that we can get in our own normal day-to-day language. We have to be content to have Tom Bombadil be, to some extent, mysterious. Because through him, Tolkien is gesturing towards things that are simply beyond the reach of our reason and understanding. Well, that's it for today. Keep checking in for Hobbit Lecture number four, which is coming soon. And don't forget to visit my site and log on to the discussion board if you have a question you'd like me to discuss later. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.